Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, when LA Times reporter Jessica Roy had her identity stolen, she felt victimized by the thieves. But the long battle to recover her identity also made her feel victimized by the people who cared little and didn't try to help, and the system that made it so easy for them to steal her identity in the first place. Jessica Roy joins us to talk about identity theft and its nightmarish aftermath, plus how you can protect yourself. That's coming up on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The FBI received a record number of identity theft reports last year, and a survey finds some 42 million Americans were affected by identity fraud in 2021, with total losses estimated at $52 billion. That's billion with a B. A report from the Identity Theft Resource Center said more than half of victims polled this year never fully resolved their cases. L.A. Times assistant editor Jessica Roy has been both the victim of identity theft and has reported on it. Her recent piece is called My Wallet Was Stolen at a Bar, Then My Identity Theft Nightmare Began. Welcome to Forum, Jessica Roy. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. So sorry for what happened to you. It truly has been a nightmare for reading your piece. Thank you. (laughs) I'm sorry to have to ask you to take us back to when your wallet was stolen and, and what you did next. I, that's totally fine. I, I I have been engaging with it for so long for work. I'm I'm happy to talk about it now. <laughs> so yeah, so you were at a bar in San Francisco, as I understand it. I was. I was at Martuni's, uh, a fantastic piano bar, uh, and I went to pay at the end of the night and went to get my wallet out of my purse, and it was gone. And it was, you know, around midnight. And so I thought, oh, okay. I woke up the next morning. I called my bank. I canceled the cards. There were a couple transactions already. They'd gone to a gas station and used a square card reader somewhere. Um, I went to the San Francisco Police Department and reported that the wallet was stolen. And then, yeah, went back, came back to L.A., got my license replaced. And I kind of thought that was the end of it. When did you realize that wasn't the end of it? That they'd actually also stolen your identity? 
So the wallet was stolen. It was the day after Thanksgiving in 2018. And then in mid-January of 2019, suddenly I started getting all these letters in the mail. It was like, congratulations on your new Bank of America checking account. Congratulations on your new Wells Fargo checking account. We're following up on your Target card application. And I, I use a service that tracks my credit, uh, you know, a monitoring service. And I started getting all these new inquiry, new inquiry, new card reported, new card. Hmm. So then what did you do then? Well, you know, I, I'm a reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and I've written about personal finance. I actually have a newsletter about budgeting. And I sprang into action right away. I froze my credit with all three bureaus, and I started calling the banks to, you know, I called the 1-800 number that was on the, the congratulations letters that I'd received to get these accounts closed. And that was where I hit my first roadblock, which was all of the um, congratulatory mail about my new accounts did not have the account number on it for security purposes, you know, God forbid, in case somebody would use it for a nefarious purpose. And so I couldn't get through to a human being to report them fraudulent and to get them closed. Wow. At this point, you were dedicating how much time even to just trying to close these accounts, make sure that uh, your credit was frozen with all the bureaus, make sure that these new credit card applications were not going through and so on. What do you it estimate? Was, it was horrible. It was like I had an unpaid part-time job where I spent like two to four hours multiple times a week on the waiting on hold on the phone, writing emails, trying to follow up on things. I It was just, it was horrible. So the thing that's interesting is that not only did they get your wallet, but they were able to obtain a lot more information about you to be able to do a whole range of things. How did they get additional information and what kind of additional information do you think they got that was not in your wallet? Right. My wallet was just my driver's license, my debit card, a credit card, maybe some like gift cards and 10 bucks in cash. There was not a lot in there. Um, they were able to obtain my social security number, my uh but they somehow found my cell phone number later on. I'm not sure about that. But my personal data, like my social security number, they were able to obtain online. And I learned in the course of reporting this how shockingly easy it is to find that information online, that virtually everyone's social security number and other credit information is available, uh, you know, for sale on the dark web. Mm. So anytime we get those notifications about a, a data breach, this is how it can come back to haunt us, essentially? Yeah. And, you know, of course, I've seen all the headlines about data hack, you know, breach, whatever. And you think, oh, OK, you know, that's annoying. I have to change my password or something. But it, it, I had no idea the scope of the information that was available online about me and about everybody else. Yeah. We're talking with Jessica Roy, assistant editor of utility journalism at the L.A. Times. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. If your identity has ever been stolen, you can tell us how you dealt with it or what questions you have about preventing or dealing with identity theft. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And you can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. So another thing that happened is once these these opened bank accounts using your personal information as well as other things, the bank sent them checks, checkbooks, so that they could write checks. Can you tell, about, tell us what happened with those, those checks? 
Yes, uh, they went on a, an incredible crime spree across Northern California. Um, let's see, they spent, it was like $13,700 at a big lots. There were a lot of checks written for, uh, you know, $70, $100, at like grocery stores and department stores and things like that. And I, I would find out about it weeks or months later because a debt collector would be chasing me down. And uh, can you talk about just the juxtaposition of how easy it is to open a bank account versus how difficult it is to close? I mean, you talked about the difficulty of just getting through to a human being, but even once you did. <laughs> yeah, that stunned me. I, th I thought I would call up and say, hi, you know, I'm the real Jessica Roy and these accounts are fraudulent and that they would fly into action. Instead, they treated me suspiciously. I remember a, um, a customer service representative from Wells Fargo started quizzing me. He did like background check questions. He would say, okay, I'm going to name, you know, four street names and you tell me which one you've lived on. And I'm going to say some people's names and you tell me which of them you would consider an associate. And I thought, why wasn't this the process to open this bank account? I, I couldn't understand why I, I was the one getting the third degree about it when I was trying to be helpful and report that they had done something wrong. And then the story around Bank of America asking you for like a notarized affidavit and all of this other information uh, oh so gosh. that they could close your account. Wow. Yeah, I was, uh, again, I, I'm going to say the phrase, I was stunned a lot, but I spent a lot of time being stunned. Yeah, Bank of America sent me a letter saying I needed to get an, an affidavit notarized and I needed to send them in the mail a copy of my social security card and my driver's license. And I called and waited on hold for a thousand years. And I said it would be insane for a victim of identity theft or anyone else to put that stuff in the mail. And the customer service rep went, oh, we would never ask you to send anything like that. And I was looking at the piece of paper they had mailed me, asking me to send that. Wow. So what kind of emotional toll is this having on you, Jessica? It was tough. The thieves had done this at, at a, what was really a difficult time in my life. I, the wallet itself was not valuable, but it had been a gift for my grandmother before she passed away. And I'd had a miscarriage a couple months earlier, and I was still really grieving that and, and hoping to get pregnant again. And I just remember my therapist at the time saying this was such a profound violation for me. And I, it was so stressful to deal with and feeling like every day I was getting more mail and having to make more phone calls. And I wasn't sure if I would ever get out from under it. She said, I think it's part of the reason you're having trouble getting pregnant again is the stress of dealing with this. You talked about how it was like an unpaid part-time job to be able to clean up after the perpetrators, what, what they did to you. And you also point out that it made you realize for anyone who is in any way marginalized, for example, maybe English is not their first language or, or they're elderly or poor, that it would just magnify the difficulty of dealing with all these things. Yeah, you know, I, I'm like I said, I'm a, I'm a reporter for a major newspaper. I have agency, I have authority, I have access to resources, I have knowledge, and I knew that on things like send me a physical copy of your driver's license and social security card, I knew I could say no. I knew that I could call and push back, and I knew I could say no. I'm not going to find and pay a notary to sign a document for you. And I think a lot of people don't realize they can say no to that. I think a lot of people just go with it. And yeah, a lot of people don't have a part-time job equivalent of free time 
to deal with all of this. And it was frustrating. I, I would get like physical stress symptoms just opening my mailbox at the end of the day. I would feel my blood pressure rise. I would feel like bile in my throat. I would start to sweat. And now, even now, the, um, the hold music that I hear on banks, I feel my heart rate starting to speed up even years later because of how stressed I was when I was dealing with it. And yeah, I, I can't imagine for people without uh, that aren't at this same level of knowledge what, what this must be like to try to deal with. I mean, that sounds like trauma to some degree. Do you feel like that is some level of it for you? Yes, I, I do think so. My, I remember my therapist saying that what I was experiencing, the, the sweat and the heart rate, she was like, those are PTSD symptoms from dealing with something that was so horrible and traumatic and violating and unending. Yes, and, and just how much of the onus was on you to try to address all of the things that had happened to you Though it does yes, sound that, like, that yeah, go ahead. I just going to say that aspect of it drove me crazy. So often I had this feeling like, okay, someone stole my wallet. They used my driver's license to open a checking account. A bank made a mistake to give them a checkbook. And then a cashier at a business I've never been to accepted that check. And for some reason, I had nothing to do with any of that. And now I'm the one who's responsible for cleaning it up. I'm, not, I'm like, not just an innocent victim here. I'm not involved at all. I had nothing to do with any of this other than my name being attached. How important was it for you to have gone to the police to, to make a report about your stolen wallet in terms of trying to get recourse? You know, at the time, I did not say when I went to the San Francisco police the day after my wallet went missing, I didn't think they were going to like, you know, I, I remember that on the square card reader they used one of the transactions that had a name and a phone number. And I said, maybe that's the person. Maybe they like used their own square card reader and sent themselves money. So maybe you could look into that. But I didn't really think they would do much about it. I know a stolen wallet is obviously not like a, a huge crime that they're going to throw a ton of resources at to solve. I did hope that maybe the people would take the cash out of it and like toss the wallet somewhere and that would get turned in and maybe I could get the physical wallet back. Right. Like, cause like I said, it was a gift from my grandmother and, and I would have really liked to get that back, um, which I did not. But later it sounds like you needed that report to be able to get some recourse in some situations. Yes, I learned later on that it was very, very important to have that police report just in terms of, I mean, it was basically like every time I had to call these banks, these debt collectors, it was like I was mounting a Supreme Court case uh, on behalf of my own innocence. And yeah, that was some of the information that I needed. And so I remember I had to, I called the San Francisco police trying to get the report the first time. And then I ended up leaving, I think, five more voicemails and then had to request it with my LA Times email address before they would send it to me. We're talking with Jessica Roy. Her recent piece, My Wallet Was Stolen at a Bar, Then My Identity Theft Nightmare, began, describes her experience of dealing with being a victim of identity theft. And we'll have more with her after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. New research from UC Davis makes the concerning finding that more Americans are okay with resorting to violence to advance political objectives. We take stock of surging threats against public officials in the wake of the attacks on Paul Pelosi. Today, we're hearing about one one person's experience of trying to recover control of their identity after being the victim identity theft. Jessica Roy is assistant editor of utility journalism at the LA Times. And in her recent piece about her identity theft nightmare, she writes, it will be entirely your problem. And no one, not the police, not the government, not the financial institutions, really cares or will help you much. What was your experience of having your identity stolen like? How did you deal with it? What questions do you have for Jessica about preventing or dealing with identity theft? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. If you want to post your thoughts or stories, you can call us, 866-733-6786. And Noel tweets, Banks and credit cards just chalk ID theft as the price of doing business since there's no way to stop it. Meanwhile, those who have had their identity stolen are left to deal with it and live in stress. They are scarred for years afterward, like my husband and my sister-in-law. And uh, I'd like to bring another person into this conversation. Eva Velasquez is president and CEO of the Identity Theft Resource Center, which is a nonprofit based in San Diego that provides assistance to victims of identity theft. Eva, thanks so much for being with us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So we've heard that uh, polls have suggested just millions of people have been the uh, the victims of identity theft, targeted by identity theft, and that the FBI's Complaint Center, I understand, received more than 51,000 reports of identity theft in 2021, which is a record high for them. First of all, is that an undercount, 51,000 or so, that you think that went to the FBI in terms of actual complaints? Absolutely. It is absolutely a floor and not a ceiling because uh, there are a lot of cases that that aren't reported and we don't have good uniform reporting processes right now. So Mm -hmm. the FTC has it. The FBI has this information. Local police departments are taking reports. So we do not have a good handle on the scope of this problem. And even as an undercount, it's a record high. Talk about why identity theft cases are on the rise, you think. Oh, my gosh. There are so many different factors involved. Um, The first is, of course, all of the tectonic shifts that we had with the pandemic and how we were operating so much, so many new uh, work from home, uh, people working from home who weren't familiar with it, um, lack of economic opportunities, compelling more and more people to commit these types of crime. They're relatively easy. The bar to entry to commit identity crimes is extremely low. 
And, and then when you add to that, that a lot of the pandemic relief uh, offered by the government became a very, it was a lucrative target. The en enhanced benefits for unemployment um, created a target at all of the states. And that's a huge reason why we saw such a dramatic increase in identity crimes at the state level. Well, let me go to caller Peter, who's on the line. Peter in San Francisco, you're on. Yes, hi. Thanks for having this discussion. Uh, I don't think you need to lose anything in order to have your quote-unquote identity stolen. I've been getting uh, swarms of emails that um, are all kinds of what look like scams. We're going to cancel your email provider unless you update us at this address. Click here. Uh, we have a purchase uh, from you for $653. Uh, if you didn't make this, uh, by all please please let us know and click here to give us the information and, and that sort of thing. And I'm concerned also that that might have happened, though I can't be sure, when uh, there was a connection made between my request for information from a city agency and they're putting it on a, on a third party, uh, not sending it to me directly only, but also sending it to a third party that's supposed to be helping them to manage information. Likewise, meetings are going through Zoom, for example. So I don't know. Zoom is notorious for uh, data breaches uh, for its users. So, so those two things uh, certainly don't require any kind of um, you losing anything. Yeah. Uh, another thing is, I think, is how people handle information on the corporate end or on the government end uh, and where they put it so that I think there needs to be more uh, responsible uh, verification of people's identity and, and establishment of uh, accounts, for example. That would, well, be, that would be a thing. Yeah. Well, Peter, thank you for that. Because, Jessica, you, you make that point, right? That that you can be the victim of a data hack or data that's out there um, because another agency hasn't been very good with protecting it. Uh, mail can be stolen even. There are a lot of ways that, that your information can be stolen with ease. Yeah, Peter's absolutely correct. You don't need to have your wallet stolen for someone to commit identity theft against you. In my case, the people who stole my identity used it for other, like they were, you know, wanted my driver's license to be able to present it in person to open these accounts. Uh, if you read my story, they they stole a Tesla through like a, a rental service by presenting my driver's license. And so my my particular experience, they they did use the physical license. But yeah, that was something one of the sources that I spoke to from the Electronic Frontier Foundation said. She's like, you know, they didn't need to steal your wallet to steal your ID. And yeah, stolen mail is a huge, huge problem and a way that these, these thieves get a lot of their information. And Eva, the emotional toll that Jessica described before the break, is that something you hear a lot among victims of identity theft who contact your organization? Unfortunately, yes. And, and you used the appropriate word earlier. It's trauma. Trauma mm. is trauma is trauma, but we tend to think that only uh, victims of violent crimes can experience trauma. And we have the data in our annual aftermath report that will absolutely disabuse anyone of that notion because we survey the folks that we've helped in a previous year and we ask them about their experience and we include all of the emotional and physical um, impacts that that victimization can have and and folks report being anxious and worried and ashamed and angry but the stunning the most stunning piece for me is that 10 percent of the victims that we survey report feeling suicidal 
10%. I mean, let that, that sink in. This, that should indicate to anyone that has not experienced this and doesn't understand why people would feel this way, that this is a life, can be a life-altering event. It uh, explains, Jessica, why there is a link to crisis counseling in your piece and also the suicide prevention line. So, Yeah, I, I think a lot of people go through this and feel like I, I'm never going to get out from under this. I, I'm never going to be able to reclaim my identity. My credit is destroyed. I can't get an apartment. I can't get a job. I, I, I see why people feel hopeless. I, I remember feeling like if these people had held me up at gunpoint and robbed me, at least it would have been over right away and like the police would have cared to help me. But instead it kept happening and no one seemed to want to help me that I got in touch with. And it just felt like it was never ending. And the thing is, is that it, it did get even more brazen and dramatic with regards to your identity. T talk about the cars, the, the bail payment. Jessica? Yes, uh, I heard from a, a, a bail uh, collection company that they had, I guess they'd used one of the checks to write um, somebody's bail for $600. And then, of course, that person had never showed up in court. And then now they were telling me I owed them $4,300. And when I said, no, I'm the victim of identity theft, they said, OK, well, we want you to come in person to our office with hard copies of all of the reports and stuff. And I said, no. I said, yeah, I, I, again, I felt like I, I'm the victim here. I'm not going to help you and take time off work. So, yeah, there was the, the bail bond thing. There was, yeah, they stole a Tesla through a peer-to-peer -peer rental service. They got into a car crash in a BMW and presented my driver's license. And I only learned about that when I heard from the other driver's insurance months later when they tracked me down. Um, they applied for another car loan at a at a, a place here uh, down here in Los Angeles for an auto loan. They got a new iPhone. It was really a... a a pretty phenomenal crime spree. And it actually did have an impact on your credit score. Can you talk about how? Yeah, one of the, again, I was shocked quite a lot going through this, but one of the most shocking parts was finding that even when your credit is frozen, hard inquiries still land on your credit report. And hard, even though the only thing the creditor gets from the inquiry is a notification that, the, that my credit was frozen. And so these hard inquiries for the car loan and for I think there was a payday loan and a couple others. If I pulled my credit report, I could see and those ding your credit score for one to two points every time. And that's not a huge individual amount. But for me, it was the principal. And it was also my husband and I were saving up for a house at the time. If we had been applying for a mortgage at that time, I don't know what we would have done. We would have had to end the, pro the process there. I, I don't know how we could have gotten a mortgage with all this weird stuff popping up. But that was part of why I was so determined to get all that stuff off of my credit report. But yeah, the hard inquiries, I just and some of them I wasn't able to get off. It's so such a bureaucratic nightmare to dispute them that I had to I had to let at least one of them just wait a couple years and fall off. This listener writes, what do you do when your social security number is stolen? Once it's out there, it's useless, right? Do you have to replace it? My son had his information stolen and used. Someone else had been paying federal taxes with it. He's filled out the cybercrime form with the IRS, but two years later, still no action. Eva, can you get a new social security number if it's been compromised? Uh, the short answer is no. Now, there is a process in which you can apply for a new social security number, but it is very, 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 very rarely honored. And it's usually for things like witness protection or something like that. So the reality is, even though that number is static data, and once it's been compromised, it's it's out there, 
changing your social security number, that's really not where we want people to put their energy when they're trying to recover. Um, and look, advocates such as myself are, are working on changing the system so that it is no longer this key identifier, well, not identifier, um, verification tool, because it is a good identifier. It does uh, state to people when you're applying for credit or using it that you are you are you. But to pretend that you're the only person that knows it and this is a secret is just ridiculous. Um, when we look at the state of data breaches, and we have tracked those year over year, and we do publish a report on the state of data breaches every year, 2021 was a record high, highest number since we've been tracking them. Um, so your data is out there, unfortunately. Um, I would recommend that this person's son call the ITRC contact center and get a dedicated plan on what action steps to take in this uh, situation because focusing on changing your social security number is is not going to be a productive um, place to put your energy and your time. And again, Eva Velasquez is president and CEO of the Identity Theft Resource Center based in San Diego. Jessica, you've talked about how it's actually institutions and other entities that need to rethink how they use social security numbers. Why? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I looked into what coverage there had been of identity theft over the years, and every story ends with a little thing that's like, make sure you have secure passwords and two-factor authentication. I already had all that stuff. I I was the model uh, citizen in terms of protecting my identity, and it happened to me anyways. And I realized in the course of my experience with this, yeah, it's a systemic problem. And And one thing is, there's no way to freeze your social security number. There's no way to say, Nobody else can use it to open anything until I unfreeze it. You can freeze your credit reports with the bureaus, but that doesn't prevent people from using your social security number to, say, file federal taxes or open a new checking account or anything like that. We're talking about identity theft and the systems that can enable it and make it harder for victims to get recourse with Jessica Roy, assistant editor of utility journalism at the Los Angeles Times, and Eva Velasquez of the Identity Theft Resource Center, CEO of that. You, our listeners, are also joining the conversation at 866-733-6786 on email at forum at kqed.org or on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Let me go to William in San Mateo. Hi, William. You're on. Uh, hello. Um, Go right ahead. Well, one thing I'd like to say is that I had a similar situation, but but by comparison, you know, very minor. Um, and right away, I realized that this wasn't personal. This wasn't somebody out to get me. They were just out to get money. And while they did get some money, um, you shouldn't take this personally. I mean, it is sort of personal because it's your credit, your bank accounts, your, you know, things. But I, I would hope mm -hmm. that your therapist would tell you that this isn't an attack on you. It's an attack that you were a victim of, but not specifically you, and that maybe that makes it a little easier. The oh, other well. thing is that the, the other thing is that they stole a checkbook um, 
a Bank of America checkbook and started writing checks on it. And unlike your guest's uh, experience, I was very surprised to find Bank of America very cooperative. Um, now, I didn't call them and sit on hold and have to go through the box and listen to the elevator music. That probably would have driven me suicidal. Mm. But I went into a bank, a branch, um, and sat down there right across the table from the bank branch manager and explained the situation. They closed that account, opened a new one for me, transferred my money into it, and they actually made me whole. William, the, do you mind my asking when this money. happened to you? When this happened to you? This happened in February of 2020, mm. just before the pandemic. I see. Well, I'm glad to hear your experience was not as traumatic and that you got more help. Jessica, do you think this idea of trying to see it as less of a personal attack and more of just, I guess, greed and whatever else separate from you would have been helpful for you or was helpful for you if that's what you tried to do? Yeah, that's an interesting point. When the thieves were caught, the police reports that I looked through, they had dozens of other victims. And it kind of reminded me of that scene at the end of the first Avengers movie, where um, Wanda Maximoff says, you took everything from me. And then Thanos looks at her and says, I don't even know who you are. Um, yeah, I was totally anonymous to these people. Uh, it, it, eventually, as you'll find out reading my story, one of them figured out who I was in terms of what my job is. But yeah, uh, I, I don't know, somehow that almost made it worse that I was going through all this. And it was like, I was just I was nothing to them. I was I think they had largely automated their process. There's software you can buy that'll do that. And I was just a, a string of numbers and letters that they were using to make money. And, and I would love to make ahead, a comment Eva. on this because this brings up such an important aspect of this crime. The resolution uh, times and processes are so wildly inconsistent because we do have victims that report to us they've been able to resolve their, their particular issue in a day or a couple of days. And they have an experience just like the gentleman who called while we get other people who will talk to us that have an experience more like Jessica's where they liken it to an illness that, that simply goes into remission, but they never know when it's going to pop up again. And because we lack uniform processes and policies and procedures to handle this issue, it's all very fractured, we're going to continue to have people having these hugely divergent experiences where they go, well, I was able to get it resolved and it actually went relatively smoothly. And then other people saying, my gosh, I, I, it still isn't resolved and it's years later. We're talking about how identity theft is on the rise and hearing about Jessica Roy's experience trying to deal with it and recover control of her identity and essentially her life. And we'll have more with both Jessica Roy and Eva Velasquez after the break, as well as you, our listeners. You are listening to Forum. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about identity theft and the systems that can enable it and make it harder for victims to get recourse. We're hearing about the experience of Jessica Roy, who wrote a piece in the LA Times called My Wallet Was Stolen at a Bar, Then My Identity Theft Nightmare Began. Roy is assistant editor of utility journalism at the LA Times. We're also talking with the president and CEO of the Identity Theft Resource Center, Eva Velasquez. This is a nonprofit that's based in San Diego. And we're talking with you, our listeners, hearing about your experiences with identity theft and taking your questions. This listener writes, when my mom died, her credit report said in 24-point type, alert, alert, this person is dead. Yet the credit company still gave out new credit cards. When I asked them about it and told them to stop, they mocked me. I had to deal with my mother's loss plus this cruelty. Another listener writes, oh, that's unfortunate. This listener writes, I've had ID theft a few times in the last 40 years. It has gotten increasingly difficult to stay ahead of the thieves given changing technology. I uncovered a group in L.A., was using my who were using my social security number to open up TV cable accounts. They caused my credit to drop by 100 points and affected my mortgage rate, which I found out on the day of signing. It's really hard when the innocent have to fight hard for their integrity. I had to be the one to lay out the trail of crumbs for law enforcement given their limited resources. Let me go to Mary in Pacifica. Hi Mary. Hi Mary, you're on. Oh, hi. Um, I'm just calling to say I had my identity stolen and I learned that it was done by somebody stealing my cell phone number. What they did is they called. I had Verizon. They called Verizon and they said they were switching my number to Boost Mobile. And within two hours, uh, over $100,000 worth of identity theft was was committed in my name. And I learned All you have to do is call your carrier, this is why I'm calling, and say you want to have something called a port freeze put on your cell phone. And you just do it for all the lines on your phone. And that means if you want to change carriers, you physically have to go in to, in my case, Verizon, and show your identity before you can change the phone number to another carrier. Oh, Mary, I'm sorry that happened to you, but thank you for for sharing that information. Jessica, before the break, you talked about how the thieves were caught um, and and what it felt like to be one of many victims that they had uh, information on when the police were able to to locate and deal with and realize, I think it was Berkeley police that you said called you and found this out. But the thing that I was struck by in your piece was you said that it really was the thieves slipping up and not law enforcement 
or a law enforcement investigation that resulted in this discovery. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what this experience has made you realize about what are sort of the changes that are needed uh, in terms of interactions with law enforcement related to these types of crimes. Sure. I talk about in my story, I had interactions with a number of different law enforcement agencies over the course of this because, you know, one of the things I learned is police really seem to only care and be interested in, to any extent, crimes that were committed within their own jurisdiction. But criminals do not neatly um, stay within one county when they are doing crimes to make it easier for law enforcement to track them down. And so, yeah, I ended up in the course of this story, San Francisco police, Berkeley police, tried to get in touch with Richmond police. I had an interaction with the multiple interactions with the West Hollywood Sheriff's Department, which is where I was living at the time, that were very unsatisfying. Um, What I learned is that they are not really interested in, uh, certainly not interested in investigating and solving cybercrime and not particularly interested in even taking your report about cybercrime. Eva, how is the ITRC trying to improve that, especially for people who are reluctant to go to the police? Yet, as we found out in Jessica's case, police reports and so on were sometimes instrumental in in being able to get um, things stopped, recourse and so on. We're trying to do a couple of things. The first one being manage people's expectations when they're dealing with law enforcement. Oftentimes, um, they they don't have the resources to open investigations on all of the identity crime reports that they're issuing, and that can create problems for them. So we do direct people to file the FTC affidavit, which can be in some circumstances used in lieu of a police report. But what really needs to happen here is a much bigger systemic change, and and it has to be one of two things. Either the FTC report needs to be more universally accepted by all of the entities where the crime can occur, including states. There, A lot of government agencies won't accept that report. They'll only accept a police report. And the other piece that has to happen is police departments need to set up their processes and policies so that they realize just because they can't open an investigation, oftentimes there isn't enough information to even do so. That's not really the case with Jessica, but for most people, they have no idea where this is coming from or what the the event was that triggered the the thieves' activity. And, and so providing the police report and setting up a process to make that easy, uh, quick for the victims that need it, and frankly, having a little bit more trauma-informed care with these citizen-facing responders, I think will go a long way in addressing this problem. Hmm. Well, Annette writes, why not add biometric identifiers to our transactions? I know that it can be copied, (laughs) but presenting your face or iris should be unique. Some people would fear that ubiquitous use but could it be worse than the current situation? Hmm. And that raises some interesting points there. Eva, you were, yeah, what's your reaction in terms of biometric identifiers for our transactions? Um, we, our, our position at the ITRC is that that is absolutely the, the necessary next step because even though biometrics are 
Um, they are static data. They don't change over your lifetime. They need to be a part of the authentication process. The challenge is there's a lot of misunderstanding about use of biometrics for authentication. And people feel very strongly when they look at things like facial recognition bias, that, that, that the whole system is bad and we should not be using that. And that is, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We're not talking about using it for attribution. I mean, looking at a CCTV camera using facial recognition to identify that person. We're talking about consent-based, I want to authenticate myself. I give you permission. Here's a picture that I am taking of myself and you can use it against a known source of truth, i.e. say my, my DMV photo. That's a very different process. And it is one that we need to embrace in these authentication processes because it will help. There's no silver bullet. Just adding biometrics isn't going to completely solve this problem, but that's okay. There are many things that we need to do because this is a complex problem. It requires complex solutions. It is something that you have written about, Jessica, in terms of just that that trade-off or discomfort that people feel with regard to uh, security versus privacy and so on, and that biometrics, as Eva is saying, can bring that up for people, right? Yes. Uh, one of the things, you know, I spoke to Eva at length while I was reporting the story and, and to other sources, and they talked about, we have a balance of um, convenience versus security when it comes to our finances. And <clears throat> part now, pardon me, right now in America, people want it to be convenient. People want this zero friction experience when they open a bank account. They want to be able to do it from their phone in five minutes. Um, I mean, I, I use an online-based bank. I opened my bank account several years ago just through a desktop computer. Um, but I think people need to embrace just a little bit of friction, especially when it comes to things like opening checking accounts or doing things like filing for unemployment or filing your taxes. I think a lot of people are averse to even something like adding two-factor authentication to your bank account. You know, the thieves were never able to access my bank account. It was interesting. William mentioned that they, they stole his checkbook and were able to get his bank funds. That never happened to me. They never got that and they tried to access my bank repeatedly and i know that because my bank relayed that information to me but a lot of people don't want to add two-factor they don't want to wait 10 seconds for a text message when they log into their bank or something like that and so embracing that little bit of friction i, I have a, a, a companion piece to my main identity theft story about potential solutions and one of them is yeah sure we can't legislate that people care more about um, securing their transactions, but it's something everybody could think about and maybe be more open to. Yes. And I think even you say the organizations themselves could have more consistency so that it isn't easier to go to a bank that makes it a whole whole lot easier for you to open an account if there is some consistency in terms of security measures or whatever they right. put in place to delay those kinds of situations. Mm -hmm. uh, well, this listener writes, in the last 10 years, I've received more than six notices of breach of my personal or financial information, including social security number. As a resolution, I've been offered to be one of many in a class action suit that pays maybe a few hundred dollars in compensation. An enrollment in a known security company's monitoring of my information, which I'm obligated to give to them. Yet again, exposing my information. Yep. The class action suits mostly benefit the lawyers. The companies exposing my information include cell phone companies and many internet apps that handle purchases. To date, my best defense seems to be that perhaps my financial status is less compelling than others. <laughs> yeah, I heard you say, yep, was that you, Jessica, in terms of yes. just what these companies try to offer as, as some kind of way of helping mitigate the damage that often seems 
counterproductive. <laughs> yes, I mean, again, as is with my experience for victims, it can be it can be an afternoon having to go to a bank, like for William, or it can be catastrophic for me, where you feel like you have no way of getting out of it and no one will help you, and it just all feels so hopeless. And yeah, you know, I talk in my story about the Equifax hack, which affected 147 million Americans. And you know, Equifax is one of the credit bureaus. They are, they are the reason we have to keep this information so safe, because they track your every financial move. And you know, you're beholden to them when somebody steals your identity, as I was, and they were hacked. And that information is out there somewhere. And they had there was a class action suit. Sure, many people heard about it and filled out the information. And their offer was a very pathetic $125 a person. And then it came out they had not put aside enough money to give $125 to every victim. I mean, I don't think anybody's gotten paid yet by them. I haven't. Yeah. We're talking with Jessica Roy, Times, and Eva Velasquez of the Identity Theft Resource Center. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Andronicky writes, my frustration lies in the unaccountability of these crimes. After my car was stolen, my finances were pillaged, and I dealt with issues for months following. At one point, the thieves opened up a credit card in my name. These thieves are not being investigated nor prosecuted. They're being protected. It's been over four years since my nightmare began, and even though my credit is frozen, I need to replace my debit card every four months because of fraudulent charges. The credit companies are predatory, in my opinion, and out for themselves. It is shocking. Just thinking about Andronaki every four months replacing uh, their debit card. I'm thinking about how in 2020, Jessica, you finally unfroze your credit so that you could get a mortgage. And then in less than 24 hours, somebody did something to your account or tried to do something with your identity? Yes. When we were finally ready to move forward with the mortgage, I was upfront with the lender we selected right away. I said, I'm a victim of identity theft. There might be things on my credit report that are funky. Let me know the last possible second that I can unfreeze my credit so that you can pull the inquiries that you need to pull. And then let me know when that's done so that I can freeze it again. And so they, they told me when that the then starting line was and I unfroze it. And yeah, at like two o'clock in the morning, I got a text from one of the banks that I use saying that I'd opened a new checking account. I, I was just stunned. I, what I ultimately learned, and this detail didn't make it into the story, the thieves had been able to call one of the credit bureaus and get my credit unfrozen. They had impersonated me. They had enough information about me to credibly impersonate me and, and get access to my credit. And they had added an email address. They, they made up a second email address. They never got access to mine, but they added a secondary one. And so I'm not sure exactly if they had automated their system and they just happened to run my credit and try to open a checking account at two o'clock in the morning that particular day, or if they were notified by the credit bureau that said, hey, congratulations, you unfroze your credit again. You know, have fun. Mm -hmm. Well, Anne writes, do services like LifeLock do their job? Nancy writes, did your guest have a security freeze on her bank account? Anyone can get one, and it would have prevented anyone from opening an account without her password. So I think we can answer those questions. And then also just what are measures we can take on the preventative end of this? Uh, so I'll start with you, Jessica. Just you did do like the check system freeze, right, on that relates to your bank yeah. accounts? or I learned that, yeah, freezing your credit with the three credit bureaus, those are not the extent of the credit reporting system. There are something like 27 different credit bureaus for different things, including one called Chex, C-H-E-X Systems. And that's the one that I had to freeze it with to prevent anyone from opening a new checking account with my information. Um, in I terms see. of LifeLock, a few, a few readers have emailed me that question too. I have not personally used 
LifeLock, I keep very close tabs on all. I kept close tabs on it before I was a victim of identity theft, and now I keep extra close tabs on it. And so I don't use that particular service. I even might be able to speak more to that aspect of it. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, Eva, go ahead. I can certainly speak to about the specialty credit bureaus. There's actually upwards of 120. Um, and they, they are crunching our data and selling our data. But the big three are the ones that we really want consumers to pay attention to because that will have a big impact on reducing your risk surface. And then even in terms of preventative things, what what's the advice you give for people who want to, I mean, we know from hearing this that it's probably a matter of, of when for a lot of people, but, uh, but what are some things that maybe people don't realize can actually be quite helpful? Well, at the risk of sounding too on the nose, my advice is always going to be to contact the ITRC because all of our services are completely free to the public. And this is a very unique space. So it a lot of the, the risk reduction really depends on how you engage digitally and how you interact with the outside world. But from the, the, the top things that someone can do to minimize their risk, it is freezing your credit. Um, getting an IP pin at, from the IRS. It used to be that you had to be a previous victim to take advantage of that, but it no longer. Anyone can get that extra pin. And it's about taking advantage of all of the extra layers of security and fraud detection that are available with the different organizations that you engage with. So we tell people, contact your bank. Ask them what additional protections you can take advantage of that they have, because it is, while banks and credit cards feel somewhat homogenous, they all have different service offerings. So ask your bank, what else can I do? And then sign up for those things. And of course, signing up for for multi-factor authentication on all of your accounts, that can also have a significant impact on reducing your risk. And I do just want to comment on the, you know, purchasing uh, identity monitoring services. We don't endorse any particular company product or service, but from a, a, the standpoint of do they have value? Yes, they can. Because mm -hmm. while you can do a lot of these things yourself for free, they can be very time consuming. So if you have the disposable income and you decide that you want to pay for that service, they can be beneficial. Just realize that paying for the service doesn't mean that you can abdicate all responsibility. You'll still have to do a lot of the things that we're talking about as far as uh, preventative measures. And speaking of responsibility, while there are things that need to be done on the policy level that we've touched on, on the institutional level that we've touched on, and things that we're doing on the individual level, I appreciated, Eva, that you try to make the point that people should not feel shame around these oh. kinds of things, because you have found that among oh, victims gosh, that, that, no. that can stop them. Yeah. Oh, no, not at all. This is such a complicated space. I mean, my organization exists because this is a complicated space. And I do think that folks... Um, will sometimes feel like this means I'm not able to handle my, my own affairs, especially seniors. And we just want people to know there is absolutely no shame in asking for help, getting help, and building your understanding through trusted resources. Yeah. Eva Velasquez, President and CEO of the Identity Theft Resource Center. Thank you. Thank you. Also, Jessica Roy, Assistant Editor at the LA Times. Thanks for sharing your story so we could learn from it. Yeah, thank you for having me.
My thanks to our listeners. Sorry for the things that you've experienced. Appreciate you sharing them. And my thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.